Loosen those apron strings, grab your sashes, and get ready to stir up some social change. Today, we're diving into a piece of culinary literature that was a main ingredient in a battle for equality and justice. Welcome to As We Eat, where we explore the intersection of food, family, history, and culture. We think there's something magical that happens when people get together and share food. Conversations seem to happen a little more naturally. We talk about our commonalities and our differences. We share stories, memories, and recipes. And we'll use food to take a journey that explores our human experience. Share some fun facts and some that aren't so fun. Talk about food history and how food connects and defines us. So if you've ever eaten, prepared, or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you. Hey, Kim, how are you? I'm doing really well, thank you. I can't believe we're already in March. I know, right? It's crazy. This year is flying by too quickly already. But March means it's Women's History Month. And in honor of that, I wanted to share a cookbook that had a significant impact on one of the most important historical events in women's history. The Women's Suffrage Cookbook, containing thoroughly tested and reliable recipes for cooking, directions for care of the sick, and practical suggestions. I always love these really old cookbooks that have the longest titles ever, but they really kind of tell you everything that's in the book. They do. You don't have to like second guess what it's about. (laughs) You don't. It's right there. Right there. So this book was published in 1886, and it was edited by Hattie Burr, and she was a schoolteacher turned activist, and she really dedicated herself to the advocation of women's rights. Now, this cookbook is actually classified as a community cookbook because the recipes in it were contributed by members and supporters of the women's suffrage movement. And one of the things that I really love about community cookbooks, you know that they are one of my favorite cookbooks. I have a pretty big collection of community cookbooks. And the thing that I love about them is that they represent this collaborative effort to support some kind of a cause. And in this case, the cause was for women to win the right to vote. And like most community cookbooks, the Women's Suffrage Cookbook was published in part to raise funds in support of the movement. But more than that, it helped to educate and persuade. It showcased women's skills beyond the kitchen, and it built community. These women were met with a lot of opposition, and in many cases, violence. We're not going to discuss that, but I do want to make sure that people do understand that they didn't just go out and march and go home. There was a lot that was going on beyond that. There were many people who believed that there were very distinct gender roles and that a woman's place was in the home, nurturing her family and not in the public sphere. And a lot of these people believed that giving the women the right to vote would upset this natural order and ultimately lead to social chaos. There were also those who were threatened by the loss of power and privilege. And there were religious tenets around moral codes that really went against what these women were trying to do. The belief was that if a woman was given the right to vote, that those moral codes would absolutely be violated. So these women really had a lot going against them. This was really and truly a fight. What this cookbook provided was an opportunity to start these dialogues with many of the antis, as they were called, because one of the biggest 
concerns around the movement was that if women were given the right to vote, it would lead them to wanting more, like maybe running for office, participating in governing bodies, and that would certainly lead to one thing, the neglect of their families. And how dare she want more for herself? How dare she indeed? How dare she? (laughs) But this piece of propaganda hit that concept head on. It was a cookbook. It wasn't a pamphlet filled with political and social rhetoric that could be easily argued. It was a book filled with recipes. Recipes that nourished families. There were lots of family favorites like apple pie and chocolate cake. And these recipes actually helped to create this bridge to initiate the conversations that would allow the suffragettes to discuss not an interest in abandoning traditional roles, but expanding women's roles within society. It doesn't just contain recipes for edible dishes. It also contains recipes that addressed health issues and household management. The recipes for household management, again, really validated the suffragette dedication to homemaking, but it also indicated a resourcefulness and independence showcasing skills beyond the kitchen. And the recipes for health issues offered an opportunity for these women to provide advice and solutions to other women. It also helped to introduce the topic of women's health and well-being that was often overlooked and many times dismissed by the established medical society. These women were really smart about the recipes that were included within the cookbook. They essentially demonstrated how interconnected women's lives were to social and economic inequalities. In order to win the right to vote, these women understood the importance of building community. And by encouraging women to contribute these recipes to the cookbook, the suffrage movement provided a space for these women's voices to be heard. And that's a powerful thing. Women didn't have a lot of avenues to express themselves. So you have this recipe and your name printed in a published cookbook. It was a big deal. It gave you agency and ownership and camaraderie. One of the things that I found really interesting related to this is that many of the attributions were formatted with a first name, a last name, sometimes a middle name of the women themselves. There were a few Mrs. So-and-sos, but for the most part, these women were being seen as individuals and not as a lesser partner in a marriage. And I think that that is one of the most important aspects of this cookbook. This cookbook also demonstrates the creativity, the innovation, and the resourcefulness and the power of these women. It really was a brilliant example of their capability to contributing to society of both their worth inside and outside of the kitchen and home. This cookbook was published, as I mentioned, in 1886, and it was actually specifically published for a couple of events that were going to be held in Boston. The first one was the Women's Suffrage Festival and Bazaar, where it, along with some other activities, would net the group $6,300. That's $200,507.58 today. That's impressive. That's an impressive fundraiser. And this cookbook, along with many of the others, were actually keystones to the efforts of the women's suffrage movement. And it's just, it's a beautiful example of the roles that food and cooking have and can play to instigate social change. 
You raised some incredibly valuable points here, Lay, and I'd like to explore them a little further. And one of those things is the female attribution mm -hmm. of a literary effort. The female authorship has been a sticky subject for a really long time. There are women in history that we know their writing is by them. I'm thinking of Sappho. I'm thinking of the tales of Genji. And while some authors in the 18th and 19th century were able to publish in their own name, I'm thinking folks like Jane Austen, the Bronte sisters, and Mary Shelley, most had to conceal their gender in order to get their works published. And they never received any acknowledgement that they as an individual made and created that work. The first cookbook authorship to be attributed to a woman in her own right is generally accepted to be The Complete Housewife by Eliza Smith. This was published in London in 1727. But we do know that there were other books of cookery. Uh, Hannah Woolley was a very popular 17th century cookbook author, but she published either anonymously or under the names of her male relatives and thereby not really getting credit until much later. Attribution and credit is incredibly important. Hmm. This is why we sign our names to legal documents. This is why we cite our sources, credit our contributors, and why we just generally attach our names to our creations. Because to do so means that we matter, that we exist, that we are individuals with minds and things to say, you know, and it's like, and that's me, right? <laughs> right. Um, and by talking about these typically private matters of kitchen, hearth, and home, the women who contributed to this cookbook as a collective are really laying bare all these efforts that go into making a home, the actual work of homemaking, right. and asserting that because they are contributors to society, because they are working in the home, that they are authors of literal and figurative of creation, that there is room for their voices in the public sphere and that they belong there and that they deserve to because they're contributing to society as well. Right. And I think importantly, once you know how the sausage is made, it's hard to pretend that you don't. Meaning, you know, they put a lot of this effort out there. I love that there are those there are recipes that are both practical. There are also some that are a little bit more meaningful and aspirational or an emotional kind of standpoint. And we're going to continue to talk about those as we talk about this cookbook, obviously. You know, honestly, as an archivist, as somebody who has some kind of background in library science and the idea of what we keep and what we don't keep, I find it incredible that this book continues to exist as a historical artifact especially when you think about it in the context of community cookbooks, mm. because those usually are created to serve a purpose, maybe a use as a fundraiser. There, there might be a one kind of independent moment in time that the cookbook is meant to be created for. I don't know whether these folks that made this cookbook in 1886, which is the first iteration of it, it's been republished since then with more information and more recipes and all that. But I don't know that they were intending for this work to stand the test of time, and yet it has, right? This right. is not a book that disappeared into somebody's cookbook collection and was thrown out by another generation, although I'm sure that happened individually. This was a book that that survived effectively intact. We do know what was in it. We do know what was in the 1886 version. We don't have to try to recreate it with excerpts or you know, here's a torn page from this section and here's another one. We know what it is. It's an entirety. 
And I think that also really speaks to ultimately how meaningful this book was to the people that created it, the people who bought it, the people who read it, that it was kept, right? And it was cherished enough that it's now considered a very important part of the record about the suffrage movement. Right. Yeah, it is. It's such a powerful cookbook. It, like, like you said, the fact that it has stood the test of time. And I do wonder, I wonder if they felt that it would stand the test of time, knowing how hard they fought and continued to fight. This was a 70 year battle. Yeah. 70 years. Yeah. These women did not falter in their dedication to win the right to vote. Like you said, it's still accessible. I would highly recommend anybody who wants to grab a copy of this. You can order it through your bookstore. You can order it through Amazon. There are also e-published PDFs online. You know, if you don't want to purchase the actual book and just look at some of the recipes that are included in it. The other thing that I found very interesting, in the back of the book, you had quotes from Abraham Lincoln. You had quotes about their support of women's suffrage. It's really interesting to see the people who said that they also supported women's suffrage. I guess one last thought I have on the cookbook and its endurance over time, over history. I think the fact that it survives as a known historical artifact speaks to how important this cause was to to people. Mm -hmm. People who bought it, people who, you know, contributed a recipe to this cookbook, that it has lasted, we keep those documents that are important to us. We keep those mementos and souvenirs of important moments, important things in our life. And that's how important this movement was to people, to real people, that to this day, we can actually look at this cookbook and try to understand the messages in it. Right. Yeah. We also have some other episodes that if you want to learn a little bit more about the influence of women in the culinary world, episode 36, Feminism at the Kitchen Counter from Betty Crocker to Julia Child. And we talk about the insights of how feminist theory provides fresh perspective on how we perceive work as we were discussing the work of homemaking. Episode 37, From the Kitchen Counter to the Voting Booth, Suffrage for Women and Community Cookbooks. And this episode really was the impetus to explore the Women's Suffrage Cookbook a bit further in this episode. So there's a little bit more overarching information, but it's a great episode to learn a little bit more about how community cookbooks have had affected suffrage. And episode 43, which is Food Pioneers, Life and Career Highlights of People Who Make Great Food. And this episode's about two African-American chefs, one that we discussed in our first episode of our cookbook journey. We talk about their careers, their brilliant careers, but we also talk about how their work in the culinary world highlights how important food culture is to community building. Mm -hmm. So... Kim, I'm excited (laughs) for what's coming up in our next episode. Speaking of episodes, I think you'll be discussing your experience with one of the recipes from the Woman's Suffrage Cookbook. Have you picked the recipe out yet? I have, but it was extraordinarily difficult because reading the recipes was confusing. (laughs) I didn't know what constituted a quick oven and I've never seen or heard from a hurt. I've never heard from a gem pan. I've never seen one either. 
And the whole section on how to cook vegetables really makes my skin <laughs> crawl. Um, boiling cabbage for an hour. I'm just remembering all the books I've read that talk about coming into a building and all that smelled like boiled cabbage. Like the whole thing is just giving me the chills and the shivers. I had intended to make a whole meal's worth of food from the cookbook, but honestly, I started to question my ability to even make one of these dishes in my modern kitchen. But I will tell you in the next episode how I managed to break through and find a way to cook. I'm super excited to hear about your experience with that recipe and what the recipe actually is. Make sure you tune in for the next episode to find out what the recipe is and how you broke through all of those issues to make it. Stay tuned. <laughs> for more information about today's episode, check out our website at asweeat.com. Follow us on Instagram at asweeat. And please join our family recipes, traditions, and food lore community on Facebook. And so you don't miss an episode, please subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you could just spare a couple of minutes and rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or Spotify, we would be so, so, so appreciative. It really helps us to reach more people who love to listen about food, food history, and how food impacts us in our daily lives. We also publish the As We Eat Journal on Substack, and we would be so honored if you would support us by becoming a subscriber. We take tasty side trips through vintage recipes, community cookbooks, discoveries, and travel stops. There are three subscription tiers. We sure you will find one that's perfect for you at asweeat.substack.com. And again, this helps us bring great content to you. You've been listening to the As We Eat podcast, part of our curiosity-driven project serving up how food connects, defines, and inspires by blending a bit of research with a dash of humor and a lot of passion. Ba -da, ba -da, ba -da.